This is the Dr. Chad Podcast. Biohack your testosterone. More sex drive. More energy. More lean muscle. Feel and be your best in three, two, one. Today's podcast is sponsored by Full Script. Go to the website, get 10% off. It's the safest source for practitioner-grade supplements. Go there now. Everything that we try to achieve is based on optimizing lifestyle first and foremost. So if you're not optimizing lifestyle, you know, you may feel good by getting some testosterone therapy or something like that, but you're not going to be an optimized human being. Today on the Dr. Chad Podcast, Dr. Daniel Stickler, he is the co-founder and chief medical officer for the Perion Center for Human Potential. He is a physician for high-performing executives and entrepreneurs who want to upgrade their current state. He is an author, speaker, blogger, and podcaster. I am excited to talk about genetic expression and how testosterone levels can increase through your lifestyle. Without further ado, Dr. Dan Stickler. All right, Dr. Dan Stickler, thank you so much for being on the show today. I appreciate you being here. Great to be here, Chad. All right. Yeah, I really just want to have a a really simple conversation with you today. I know genetics is a pretty complicated uh, subject, uh, but if you could just explain to the audience today, possibly first grade level, second grade level kind of thing, um, how um, low testosterone plays into genetics. Oh, that's a lot of questions there. Uh, (laughs) We can take it in layers. uh, Yeah, so let's just start off with genetics. I mean, you know, the the genetics is essentially the blueprint of the of the human system and the genetics really doesn't change over time it's it's the core um blueprint of what makes each of us individual but it goes much deeper than that so even though we have this code i mean take identical twins they will have the exact same code i mean three billion base pairs that are essentially identical but you raise them in different environments and they, other than having a similar appearance, they may have completely different expressions of that code. And that aspect is what we call epigenetics. And so there's a, there's a lot of layers. Uh, I mean, hundreds of layers. The, the, the human system is so complex that using just straight genetics is, is hard to do. And that's why you know we don't promote the use of direct-to-consumer genetic testing because it is it, without understanding the complexity of it, uh, trying to translate based on that uh, is very difficult. Um, be like translating a foreign book and not understanding the, the language itself. It just doesn't work. So you have to have somebody that can kind of interact with that code in the person and look at expressions and things that affect expressions. So having the, the extra layer of interaction is required. Um, and that's why we just, we don't promote the use of direct to consumer genetic testing. Now that said, we do use a lot of genetic testing, but we use it in, in probabilities. So you carry a certain genetic variant, you have a probability that this will happen, but even just like MTHFR, you know, everybody goes crazy over MTHFR. But I've seen people with what they call the homozygous risk. A lot of people call this a mutation, but it's not, not the correct terminology. It's, it's just a variant of uh, the genes. And 
they have no problems with methylation, even though they have the double risk for it. And why is that? Well, the reason is, is because of what they call the, the omnigenic model. The omnigenic model says, you know, every, every characteristics, characteristic we carry has multiple genes, uh, hundreds even of genes that interact to create an outcome. And with that, you usually have 15 to 20 key genes that are key factors involved in that. And so understanding those key genes and how those interact with each other gives you an idea of, you know, what is the probability of methylation in this person? And then you want to confirm that through lab work, through um, questioning their experience, uh, what they experience in life and, and all of that. So I hope I didn't get too complicated with that. I, I was trying to, trying to keep it as simple as possible without, without getting too detailed in that, in that regard. No, it's great. I love it. I mean, really um, the probably the biggest objection I get with my clients or even anybody I talk to, you know, they, they always blame their low testosterone on their genetics and they're kind of playing like a victim role in a way. And you know, I always try to empower them. Look, your environment controls a lot of your genes. So you know, what can we, can, what, what, what can we change? What can we implement, you know, to give you the best chance of, of, of expressing, you know, yes. life. And, and we use genetics in, in the hormones. We have a whole hormone template that we look at, and testosterone is a, a piece of that, where we look at roughly 20 different genes that, that impact testosterone levels in people. So we look at uh, propensity for SHBG production, uh, which is a big deal. You know, too much SHBG, it's going to kind of rob you of the free testosterone. We look at genes that control conversion into DHT. Uh, we look at genes that control conversion into estrogen, the aromatase genes. Mm -hmm. um, and we also look at genes that control LH expression. So you do carry propensities in there. Uh, but even if you have like a strong propensity for low LH, doesn't mean you're going to have low LH. It just means there's a propensity to, to have that. And so your production of testosterone may be lower. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into that, but, but certainly every one of those can also be affected by environmental aspects. So how do we alter the expressions of the genes that we actually carry? Yeah, exactly. Um, is there anything specific that we, that you know that we can do to um, help combat the, the aromatase enzyme? Um, try not to allow that to convert into estrogen. Uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of, uh, kind of more natural things like uh, chrysin um, and aromatase inhibitors, which are the prescription types. Um, but, you know, we, we tend to focus a little too heavily on reducing estrogen levels. Um, I don't firmly believe in that. I mean, I've, uh, I've prescribed testosterone therapy for uh, 20 years now in clients and I used to be very aggressive about lowering estrogen levels but the more I learn from the genetic and epigenetic standpoint the less aggressive I've become with that and a lot of that reason is estrogen is probably one of the most potent epigenetic modifiers in the human body and it is not a female hormone it is a sex hormone in both males and females one of the biggest things is the conversion when testosterone crosses the blood brain barrier, there's a high conversion into estrogen and that estrogen is responsible for a lot of the 
cognitive and neuroplasticity and neurogenesis aspects of what we think of as testosterone causing, but it's actually after it's been converted into estrogen. So, you know, the higher testosterone levels mean higher estrogen level conversion in the blood after crossing the blood brain barrier. And you get benefits from that, especially in things like APOE4 genotypes where, you know, we know that hormonal therapies, people with the highest levels of testosterone have the least incidence of Alzheimer's disease. And, and yet I still feel like based on the physiology that a lot of that is coming from that estrogen conversion. So if you're like high on testosterone, but you're blocking too much of that conversion, you may not get those benefits. Okay. I mean, what, what, um, what kind of effects would, uh, like, like high stress, like typical American lifestyle have on our genetic makeup right now? Like, you know, whether it's sleep or. Yeah, huge. Uh, we, we take a full systems approach when we work with clients. So they may come in and say, Oh, you know, I've got low testosterone levels. I need some help with that. Well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to address their sleep. We're going to address their stress. We're going to address nutrition. We're going to address supplementation, hormones, athletic uh, and movement aspects. So we look at um, really everything that we try to achieve is based on optimizing lifestyle first and foremost. So if you're not optimizing lifestyle, you know, you may feel good by getting some testosterone therapy or something like that, but you're not going to be an optimized human being without getting the sleep, getting the stress under control. Um, and, and I don't want to say stress like it's a bad thing. I mean, stress is a life-saving component and stress works well in an acute sense, but chronic levels of stress has huge impact on, on physiology itself. Yeah. You can't, con- you can't consistently run away from the tiger your, your whole life. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I've, I've done a lot of study with like, you know, Bruce Lipton stuff and, and epigenetics and. And now I'm get to talk to you. So just want to keep expanding that. Um, I love it because, like I said, a lot of people just are trying to kind of play a victim role, and they don't think they can do anything about it. And so they just, you know, they don't, they, they they don't they don't make the necessary lifestyle changes. So I just really want to, you know, know what the best lifestyle changes are, are out there for uh, helping our genes express. Well, one of the, first and foremost is going to be sleep. Um, I think that's what I see in my clients is that um, sleep is probably the biggest thing that's out of homeostasis in in them, uh, whether they're athletes or business executives, entrepreneurs, whoever I'm working with. Sleep seems to be a major, major component. Uh, very few people are optimized on sleep when they first come in. And that one has profound uh, changes in gene expression when it's not optimized. And, and we know, I mean, it's one of the biggest um, contributors to aging in the human body. And aging to me is a disease uh, that we need to be vigilant about constantly. Would, are you suggesting just, just more sleep or just like an optimal level sleep? Of course, you always hear the seven to eight hours thing, but is it like a, a deep sleep count or is it lacking sleep debt kind of thing? It's a combination. So you have not only sleep time, but sleep structure. Um, Sleep structure can be thrown off quite a bit in people. So you look at, um, and and we have all of our clients wearing monitoring devices so that we can actually get an idea of what's happening. 
And you may say, well, you know, they're not 100% accurate for sure with sleep. I mean, unless you're doing a, a, an EEG study, you're not going to know for sure what, what brainwave patterns are being produced. So it's a guess on the, on the sleep patterns. But you can see the dynamics of it. You can see changes in the amount of deep sleep or the amount of REM sleep or light sleep. You can see the number of uh, times you're awakening at night, those kind of things. And you look at the dynamic of that. So how's it changing based on the interventions that are being done over, over time frame? For us, um, you know, we look at genetics because genetics does have a strong um, circadian propensity. And a lot of people try to fight their circadian propensity. So if you're a morning person, you know, staying up until one o'clock at night is probably not going to do well with your gene expressions. And a lot of people will justify that and say, well, you know, I, I tolerate my schedule well, just because that's what they want to tolerate. But the brain is very adaptive in the fact that it adjusts for accepting lower levels of performance as normal without us perceiving the fact that that's occurring. And there's been plenty of studies on that, uh, especially looking at things like vigilance levels. You know, when you get a lack of sleep or your circadian propensities get off, your vigilance levels drop, but you don't have a perception of them dropping. So it's more of um, identify what your circadian propensity is and try to adjust your lifestyle around that. I mean, a lot of the times we can make lifestyle adjustments to alter gene expression, but sleep is not one that is real conducive to that. It's one that we really try to gear them towards a circadian propensity and, um, and we try to get them to figure that out on their own. So what we do is we say, okay, you know, we want you to get minimum of about seven to eight hours of sleep. So let's dispense with the alarm clock, see what time you wake up. Most people will wake up pretty routinely around the same time. And once we identify that, then we work backwards and we say, okay, well, if you're waking up at six, then we want to get you in bed by 10. And so for a month we get them, okay, you're in bed at 10 o'clock and no alarm. Um, so you wake up when you wake up and typically we, we see them start to match that circadian propensity when that happens. Okay. Um, yeah, I've, I've, uh, probably two years now I've used an alarm clock that wakes me up, um, within a half of an hour so it can hear me. And if I roll or something like mm -hmm. that, I'm in more of a light sleep, then it, you know, slowly increases the, the volume and wakes me up, you know, in less of a, an alarm state, <laughs> you know, a lot, lot right. less of a stress state. So, um, is that kind of what you're going for? Cause, cause I'm, well, I'm in a sense with rolling. Yeah. I, I mean, what we look for is you will naturally wake up um, at the end of a REM cycle. That's yes. the natural time you wake up. I mean, you, you, everybody knows this, you know, if you, if you wake up and you're wide awake and you look at the clock and you're like, Oh, I got five more minutes before my alarm is going to go off. I'm going to go back to sleep. Yeah. You're I wide know. awake at that point And you think, okay, well I'll just get five more minutes. And then you drop into a deep sleep that alarm goes off and you wake up and you're, you're in a daze because yeah. you've woken up out of the wrong cycle. Um, and that's why I really like the fact not using an alarm. I mean, I've used an alarm maybe three times in the last two years and it's just to get up for early flights or something like that. And I routinely wake up um, somewhere between five and six o'clock in the morning, uh, depending on, you know, what my, my current schedule is and uh, when I'm getting to bed. Right. 
and, and I teach a lot of uh, on on um, on sleep well because that's one of the things I struggled with for a while, and a lot of it had to do with just preparing to go to sleep you know at night. So mm-hmm. usually people would just like you know they would delay sleep. They try to stay up as long as they could just to have some type of freedom because they don't want to wake up for work the next day. But then I switched that mindset and I just I was like I'm gonna go to bed so I can have a great day tomorrow, you know? So the TV was off, you know, there's no negative, you know, news on the TV. There's no, you know, flashing lights on you. There's no screens in front of you, maybe a sleepy tea or something like that, that I'll drink. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll set my clothes you know, out the night before. So I don't have to think about that in the morning. I might, you know, make a list of things that I have to do tomorrow. So I don't have to think about it while I'm sleeping, you know, just a little stuff like that make, made me go into much deeper sleep and I woke up a lot more refreshed. <laughs> you're, you're getting very complicated for me. I'm, I'm a more simple guy than that. Um, you know, I like, um, I like to get my clients to the point where they, they're waking up because they want to get up, not because they have to get up. Um, that's a big deal. Uh, when you're waking up because you have to get up, it sets a tone for the day that is not, good um you know it's the people that say oh i have to get up at this time because i gotta get the kid ready for school i gotta get to work i gotta get to the workout um so that have to get up is problematic for a lot of people um and in preparation for bed you know it depends on on what the issue is is it an issue of uh, difficulty falling asleep staying asleep is the mind racing at night um you know, and obviously what you're talking about with doing a lot of these prep things with, you know, cooling room down, uh, blacking out the room, not watching the, uh, the screen time. Those are all, all valuable. But I also have people that have like GAD1 variants in their, in their genes that if they eat high glutamic acid foods, they're going to have high glutamate levels at night. And so you want to kind of minimize the glutamic acid. And you can do things like magnesium glycinate to mitigate that. So you can really bio-individualize the, the approach to sleep with them. I have some people that have very low production of uh, alpha waves. You know, they have BDNF uh, gene variants and things like that. So they will lay in bed and just have a difficulty time dropping into phase one sleep. So what you do is you work with them. Uh, we like the, like the, the Muse headband, which is a nice alpha wave trainer. Get them to do, um, you know, a 10 to 12 minute uh, meditation with the with the muse right before bed kind of sets that alpha stage pretty well and uh, helps them to fall asleep better okay that's great um, how about the use of like melatonin or something like that it depends um, and again this is an area that we look at in the genetics so some people have low melatonin production some people have low response to melatonin um, we look at melatonin receptors like the MT NRB1s and you know, somebody who's got a low response, it doesn't matter if you give them melatonin or not, it's not going to do a great deal of good. So if we have somebody with a normal response, low production, then we know they're going to do well with it. Uh, But then we also look at things like, you know, a lot of people aren't aware, but the gene that metabolizes caffeine is also responsible for metabolizing melatonin. So if you're a rapid metabolizer of caffeine, like I am, then I can metabolize melatonin well. So it'll help me to fall asleep and not stay asleep. Uh, but somebody who's got a very slow metabolism of melatonin, you give them, you know, a, a large dose of it of three milligrams or more, and it may be persistent the next morning because they're not metabolizing it. 
So you, you've got to look at the whole system when you're making recommendations on these in these areas and say, you know, how can we how can we truly individualize this to what we're trying to achieve with you and then how do we measure it? Okay. Yes, I love it. I mean, there's, there's some other tips I have here I mean, with uh, vitamin D3 levels, um, uh, fatty acid levels. Uh, we talked about meditation. I've got a note here. It's, you know, it uh, works with about 2,200 genes that are expressed kind of switching on and off and stuff like that through meditation and even exercise yep. um, affects 7,000 genes. Uh, so pretty neat stuff there. Can you expand any with the vitamin D or the mega uh, supplements? Yeah, I mean, vitamin D, I mean, we know of at least 160 different metabolic processes that vitamin D is involved in on top of the fact that, you know, vitamin D is a hormone. It's not a, not a vitamin per se. It's a hormone that, that has profound uh, alterations in gene expressions. And most people are deficient in vitamin D. So we count vitamin D as what we call one of our foundational vitamins. So it's something that we put everybody on a uh, uh, nice, simple multivitamin, vitamin D, fish oil. Those are standard across the board uh, for pretty much everybody that we, we deal with. Um, but everything that we do, I mean, every breath we take alters the gene expression in some way. Chronic uh, exercise is really good for altering expressions of genes in a very positive manner. I mean, you know, BDNF is great for producing alpha wave patterns, neurogenesis, um, and exercise will upregulate expression of BDNF in the brain. So you want to sleep well, you know, uh, BDNF is a great thing, but you can also kind of kind of bypass that a little bit. You can take uh, something like holy basil, which actually mimics the, uh, the expression of BDNF that exercise does with the brain. So holy basil is really good for boosting BDNF. So somebody who has low alpha wave production or low, uh, uh, BDNF variant in their genetics, you can use stuff like, um, like holy basil uh, on top of the exercise to really get a kind of a double hit on boosting that expression. Yeah, ultimately, that that's increasing like the the growth hormone there, right in the muscles there. Yeah, um, you know, holy basil is one of my favorite supplements. Uh, it when you take holy basil, it will it will boost growth hormone levels directly in the muscle cell itself, but then it induces um, expression of FNDC five in the muscle, and that FNDC five gets out in the circulation, goes to the liver, gets converted to iris, and iris and goes to the brain. And induces BDNF, so it's a, it's a really nice combination. Um, I take holy basil pretty regularly, and it's uh, it's wonderful about uh, with with not only its positive effect on muscle and exercise, but also with the BDNF production in the brain. Very good, that's awesome. Um, just to expand on exercise a little bit more, I mean, are, are, would you suggest any exercise that the person would do, or is there any specific? Um, like heavier weights or you know, cardio? Uh, it really needs to be a mix and it needs to be changed periodically. I mean, I think that's the, you know, we're talking about epigenetics here and uh, when it comes to exercise and, and we see this quite frequently, I mean, people will, they'll do uh, exercise for, you know, three months, you know, they've been a couch potato, they start an exercise program, they're doing the same program for three months, they're losing weight pretty regularly during this time. Uh, feeling better, uh, getting in better shape. And then the next three months, they're doing the same exact thing and nothing's happening. 
and they're going, what's, what's going on? I'm eating the same. I'm exercising the same. Why am I not making progress at this point? Well, the reason you're not making progress is because think of epigenetics as really the adjustment of your gene expression to your environment. So when you're, when you're a couch potato, you're, you're kind of like right here with your gene expression. And then you start exercising and you're, you're venturing outside of this comfort zone that you have. And so this comfort zone, as long as you're kind of working around within that comfort zone on the high and low end of it, uh, there's no, there's no reason for the genes to change expression. So they're not saying, okay, this is a, this is a new environment to me. It's saying I can function well in this environment with the current expressions I have. So in that three month period, you're up here above where you had been. But now after three months, you've adjusted that new familiar zone up here and you're still working in that same zone. So now you've got to push out of that zone. So it's a matter of either changing the intensity, changing the type of exercise, something that tells the body or the genes basically that I'm in an unfamiliar environment now and I have to make adjustments to my expression to thrive in this new environment. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, what's going off in my head is like a kind of muscle confusion kind of idea. If you, you do the same thing over and over, it's just going to get used to it. And right. uh, you know, just, you know, sign up for a 5k or sign up for a triathlon or sign up for one of those challenge courses, like, uh, uh where you have to, you know, jump through puddles or yeah, yeah, something like that. Like just, you know, change it up once in a while and take it. Is that what that is? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Just uh, stuff like that would be, would be huge for people. And plus you can do it in a group. So it's, it's, uh, there's accountability there too. You know, I, I feel like most yeah. people don't exercise just cause you know, they hold themselves accountable and they just, ah, I'm tired today. I'm not going to go, you know? So right. we don't want that. Well, we, I mean, we gamify these things too. I mean, like I said, all my clients have the, uh, yeah, that's fun. the gar garments and uh, we just did a challenge that ended Sunday, a seven day challenge. And there were, uh, there were five of us competing on steps and it was so funny watching it because we were pushing each other so hard. I mean, I ended up with 102,000 steps in seven days. Um, but every day it was pushing a little bit harder because we were trying to get that first. And it tells you every time, oh, so-and-so just knocked you out of first place or whatever. So, you know, to gamify it and make it fun. And it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, how many miles did you run? It's just basically steps that yeah. we're talking about. Have have you tested out uh, a couple different ones of those? Have you tried like the yeah uh, the rings and the Fitbits and I like that and you know if you can if you can measure it you can manage it and everything that we do we want some way to measure whether it's working or not you know relying on subjective stuff is not very useful in my opinion in the years I've been working with clients and. Uh, I like, you know, I started off using the thing, uh, Fitbit, then I went to a BioStrap uh, because the BioStrap had HRV with it. And then Aura came out um, with their smaller version. I couldn't stand that large version. It was just too bulky. Um, but the smaller version was nice and attractive. Those, like BioStrap and, and Aura Ring and Fitbit are really good for just basic monitoring. You know, getting your sleep, getting your HRV, 
getting heart rate averages, those kind of things, steps, those are great. When it comes to more performance-based stuff, then you want to go to the, like the Garmin, uh, what's it called? The Vivo Fit, the, um, the Phoenix, you know, Phoenix is my favorite. I mean, it's just, it gives so much detail um, that I really kind of lean most of my clients towards the Phoenix and they, they're not cheap. I mean, the, the Phoenix five, you're, you're talking over $500. Some of the newer models are up around a thousand dollars, but it's, it's an investment in your health and everybody who gets one just becomes so obsessed with it. I mean, you're monitoring sleep. It gives you stress levels you know, just the fact that I, I realized that, uh, when I have one glass of wine, my stress level goes up dramatically for the next 12 hours. I mean, it's not a mild elevation. I mean, my, they have a, an algorithm in the, in the Phoenix that measures stress. And I typically would run, you know, around 35 to 40 in a day. And when I have a glass of wine, um, my nighttime stress level, which normally would run 15 to 20 runs about 30 my average for the day goes up 45 to 50 and that's with just one glass of wine. Well, I don't feel dramatically different from a subjective standpoint, but my biometrics are showing me that there's something going on that is not generally healthy. So knowing that and seeing that on a regular basis and testing it, I realized that I probably should reduce number of days in a month that I drink wine. So I'm typically down to about two days a month of having a glass of wine and uh, my stress levels look good. So, And you never would have known that if you didn't measure it in the first place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that too. It's just like, you know, I'm, I'm an adult, you know, I, I can have a glass of wine or something like that at night. Like I had a long day's work and you know, I started kind of doing more of a subjective thing myself where the next day I was always tired. I'm like, I just had one glass of wine. How could that make a difference? And I started yeah. swapping it out with uh, apple cider vinegar. It was the opposite effect, you know. Right. <laughs> you can't yeah. you can't chug that down. So you do have to sip it and kind of enjoy it. And, and the next day, opposite effect. I'm I'm raring to go. So yeah, I'm glad you measured that too. That's great. Um, one of my last questions here. I mean, if we can switch over to methylation, um, what can you expand on that? Um, I think we have a tendency to over over treat. Um, so when it comes to methylation, we really, first and foremost, you want to look at the symptoms, you know, are the symptoms consistent with somebody who's over methylating or under methylating? And, you know, there's a whole list of symptoms for, for each area and you just kind of go through it. I go through it with a client and even before I look at the genetics. So I, I have a pretty good idea of whether they're going to be an over and under methylator and the genetics is more of a confirmatory uh, test in most cases. And then I also get blood work. So I'm looking at homocysteine levels, um, predominantly homocysteine, but again, these are markers. So you want to put the whole picture together. So symptoms along with the genetics, along with the biometrics, you know, is this consistent with somebody who's got a methylation issue, either over methylation or under methylation. And then you want to test it. You want to, you know, use a supplement like methylfolate or SAMe, whatever you're going to use to, to boost methylation patterns. Um, and see what their response is, not only from a subjective standpoint, but also from a biometric standpoint. I mean, uh, we've, we've actually used um, whole blood histamine levels to be confirmatory tests. So if we have somebody who's in, uh, suspected under methylator, 
we'll get a whole blood histamine on them before we do an intervention. Then we'll do the intervention, see if their symptoms go away, and then repeat the whole blood histamine level and see if we're actually into a normal range at that point. And uh, you know, some people, even though they, they seem to be under methylators, you give them methylfolate or SAMe, and they can have very adverse responses to it. Like somebody with depression who's an under methylator, you give them methylfolate, and you're going to make their depression worse. I mean, it's uh, it methylfolate actually um, increases reuptake of serotonin, and so you don't want to go that way with somebody who's even though they have symptoms of undermethylation, if they've got depression on top of that, then you have to be careful with it. So you got to look at the whole system rather than, you know, looking at the, you know, everybody uses MTHFR and I mean, there's, there's at least eight to 10 different genes that we know of that have a strong impact on this. You know, obviously MTHFR is a big one, but you know, you've got to look at the other ones as well. Yeah. Um, so what would you suggest for someone who does want to, um, like have their genome tested? Um, I know you said you don't like the direct, direct to consumer, um, tests that are out there now. A lot of them are on commercials and stuff like that. What would you yeah. suggest for anybody who's listening today? Well, get with somebody who's an experienced, uh, epigenetic coach, somebody who understands the genetics, knows how to interpret them. And, and there's a big difference between the person who is, Kind of book smart versus clinical smart. Um, there's a lot of people out there promoting the fact that they can do uh, that they they treat methylation issues and and they can tell you everything about a pathway, but they don't understand clinical application of it or the complexity of the the gene expression versus you know the gene itself. You know, oh, you got an MTHFR. We got to look at your BHMT. We've got to look at your uh, CBS uh, 677s, you know, they're looking at all these pathways and they're creating a map based only on the pathway and not on the person. So you want somebody that not only understands the pathways, but has clinical experience in working with them and understands that there are a lot of variables involved and it's not as straightforward as looking at a, at a biochemical pathway and being able to, you know, uh, wrote, wrotely uh, memorize the pathway. <laughs> Right. Totally understand. Definitely uh, got to go through a lot of training to understand that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, cool. Um, well, I appreciate your time. Um, you definitely answered all my questions. I appreciate that. I, I definitely took a few notes here and I'll be rewatching this to, you know, get that stuff back in my head too. And hold <laughs> on. So, I appreciate everything that you do. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll make some links and some posts and, and connect you to everything and um, hopefully can reach out to as many people as we can and, and help them out. So um, great to be on the call. Yeah, it was great talking with you. All right. Thanks, Doc. We'll see ya. All right.